You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. This episode is a highlight clip from this week's full episode. To listen in on the complete conversation, see the show notes for the link to the complete show. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate every bit of your support. I'm Morgan McKittrick, your producer, and this is Decidedly. Some of my research identifies the circumstances under which people are most prone to overconfidence and when they're prone to underconfidence. I mean, underconfidence is is a real issue, right? So the circumstances in which people are most likely to think that they're better than others are when the task is easy. Like you said, in a booming market, everybody can feel like they're a genius. And then when everything goes south, it's easy for people to feel like, oh, this is hopeless. I can't do this. And to pull out at exactly the wrong moment, right? And so the challenge there is figuring out how to calibrate your confidence. And that is a real challenge, figuring out how confident you should be when you should pay attention to your internal numbers and yeah. <laughs> when you should be appropriately self-critical. How did, how did you get involved in studying overconfidence at all? Huh. I mean, that's, that's a, such an interesting area. Yeah. Well, so um, it is uh, my my fascination is with decision making biases, the the ways in which um, flesh and blood mortals like you and me uh, fall short of the perfectly rational ideal in the way that we make decisions. And um, one of the biggies is overconfidence. So there is broad consensus among scholars who study this stuff that overconfidence is one of the biggest, most pervasive, most consequential of the biases to which human judgment is vulnerable. So um, it's, it's a topic worth studying. And for my dissertation way back when, I thought I found an instance where people were systematically underconfident, which came as a bit of a surprise because the consensus in the literature was basically that people are overconfident most of the time about most things. So chasing that down and figuring out when people are underconfident has led me uh, to mine this rich vein of psychology, distinguishing the different sorts of overconfidence, when they're most likely to occur, and where they'll trip up our decision-making and lead us to make mistakes. What are the different types of overconfidence you were talking about? Um, Overestimation is thinking that you're better than you are. Overplacement (laughs) is the (laughs) the exaggerated belief that you're better than others. And overprecision, Behavioral oh, finance okay. scholars agree that this is the one that really um, is most likely to affect investors, and that is the excessive faith that you know the truth, that you have correctly mm. estimated the true value of some security, mm. or you know where it's headed in the future. Um, when you believe too strongly in your own noisy private signal, you'll be too willing to trade on that uh, imperfect information, even against other counterparties who have more information. It's what leads um, I- individuals, day traders, to risk their retirement savings in market transactions with the smart money, the better informed hedge fund managers who uh, are only too willing to trade against them when they when those managers have better information than the individual investors do. Even I hear it from professionals. Yeah. And they say, oh, well, you know, we think, you know, interest rates going to go to X, you know, by the end of the year. And, you know, I only say, well, based on what? And, and there's no, nothing behind it's it. It's never they a just good sort reason. Of think that. No, it's never quantitative. 
It's just their guess, you know, and as you said, there's somebody trading against that. It's just a speculative crapshoot based on competing overconfidences. Yeah, the, 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 the behavioral component of, of investing is so important. It, and and I think, you you know, I don't even hear the word behavioral finance. Both Sean and I are, you know, we would consider ourselves behavioral financial advisors. Um, so I can appreciate the the art and the science of that. That's an area certainly of overconfidence or that are areas of underconfidence with money and not to put you on the spot, but with, are there areas of underconfidence with money that stand out to you? Oh my God, there's so many people who would benefit from putting their money in the market. And this doesn't mean uh, becoming that, that my mom should become a day trader. So there's so much knowledge they're aware that they don't have. They're intimidated and they stay out completely. And that underconfidence means that they're losing out on potential yeah. benefits that they should be enjoying. So is that underconfidence or is it um, irrational like fear? fear or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if they're worried about the possibility that they could be exploited in a market transaction that they don't completely understand, I mean, there's there's decent basis for them to worry about that, right? If they're pretty clueless, my mom, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot she doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, some about people just, the they just, they don't know the ABCs about money. And, and I, in my opinion, the people who don't know the ABCs, usually they don't, they know they don't know. It's the people who've learned the alphabet a little bit and they think they're Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so you two have heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, the, the um, dangerous zone where people who um, know too little to understand how little they know yeah. uh, can get themselves into real trouble, right? Oh, my buddy told me about this you know, startup that, that he says is just going to go gangbusters. So I'm putting yeah. my retirement savings in that, that those are the people who are at greatest risk. And so the challenge there is calibrating, uh, your uncertainty, figuring out how little, you know, and adjusting your, your strategy going forward appropriately. Obviously if, um, you're, you're really clueless getting a little bit of advice to help you figure out what there is to know and the sort of sensible options for someone who's coming to the market as a relative neophyte. You have information that's useful to help you calibrate your confidence better. It's also really helpful to seek out honest feedback from others. So courageous managers pick deputies, promote colleagues, who have the, the courage to tell them when they're wrong. It's the um, bosses with weak egos who only appoint the, those who tell them yes yeah. and, and praise them. You don't want that. As the person running an organization, the person making the important decisions, you want to have courageous critics around you who are willing to tell you when you're messing up. And that, that, that information, that uh, criticism, that negative feedback is essential for making wise decisions and helping you check yourself and stop yourself before you commit to making a bad decision. Okay. So having people in your corner who are going to check you when you're making mistakes, um, but also asking ourselves, how can we ask ourselves? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I can, I can ask that question to myself. I don't know if I'm going to remember if I'm already confident, I don't need to because, you know, I've got the confidence. So one way that, that um, poker players help 
each other get better calibrated is by asking, want to bet? So Annie Duke uh, in her book, Thinking in Bets, is, is just priceless on this uh, and tells wonderful stories of propositional bets where like, you know, one poker player will be talking about uh, how, you know, they could eat a uh, um, hundred uh, White Castle burgers or uh, the, the um, late night adrenaline junkie says, yeah, sure, I could live happily in Des Moines, Iowa. And then their buddies say, <laughs> want to bet? I'll put $10,000 on you not being able to last a month in Des Moines. So this was a real bet where like uh, <laughs> the, the person who said he could live in Des Moines, his buddies were like, okay, we're, you're going to live on one street in suburban Des Moines, Iowa. You can't leave that street. There, on that street, there is one restaurant and one bar that both closed at 10 p.m. They said, if you live there a month, we'll pay you $10,000. <laughs> he got on the plane the next morning. And after he'd been there a week, he called his buddies and was like, yeah, this is easy. No problem. How about I let you guys out of your bet? And uh, you, just, you just pay me $5,000 right now. And they smell desperation. They said, not a chance, not a chance. You got to stick it out. And he said, okay, come on, let me out of it. I'll, I'll pay you. How about if I pay you? And he wound up settling for like 5,000 bucks. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So challenging each other by asking, want to bet? Like put some real stakes on that. What is the probability associated with this outcome in which you profess to have so much confidence? Um, when we think about putting real money on the line, even if it's just a reputational bet with dollar stakes, it helps discipline our thinking and helps us get serious about calibrating that confidence. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, so I, I think when you look at being honest with yourself and sort of asking that question, putting some real skin in the game probably uh, helps you be honest with you know, how much you're willing to wager to uh, to test your confidence in this premise? You're, Sean does that you're to me uh, without knowing that. I do that nonstop. Sean, you would do that to me all the time. Oh, oh I could, I'm I could so totally sorry. do this or that or the other thing. You know, I hit a cool pool shot. You didn't mean to do that. Yes, I did. Oh, really? Could you do it again? Totally. Want to bet? You know, don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. You're a sucker for the double or nothing. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm not. I I'm thankful for those experiences when I was younger. I I'll never have a gambling addiction because Sean and I would play pool and we would we would bet like five either five dollars or you got to clean the house for fifteen minutes or whatever. Which you know I'm like oh pretty good you know hourly rate um 20 bucks an hour that's not not so bad a uh, trade-off and i would lose every game and i would lose the game <laughs> and you'd go oh you double or nothing and i was a sucker and so i'd say well yeah because i always thought i could beat him um because i was really really good i was undefeated when i practiced by myself uh and <laughs> then he'd come he'd beat me again and i'd end up cleaning the house for three hours on a wednesday <laughs> and, and you know i got you on a double or nothing one time and you had to swim out into the lake at the ranch in the winter oh time. yeah in january <laughs> swim out in the lake and 
I think I ended up yeah. eating to eat a worm too. It just it got really bad. <laughs> <I think laughs> you did. Yeah. No, you kept. Well, you kept. You were so over. You were classically overconfident in your ability to win this uh, trivia game. When I was young, there was no amount of times that I could lose that would make me think I would not win the next one. Um, Sean, it sounds like you deserve some credit for parenting successes, helping your son calibrate his confidence. <laughs> The one gem, the kernel, the essence of good decision-making that I hope all my students take away is remembering that choosing the option with the highest expected value is the essence of good decision-making. Yeah. And uh, making good estimates of expected value means estimating the utility of an outcome and its probability. Um, in concept, that seems like an, an easy calculation. In reality, it can be devilishly difficult. And one of the ways that we mess it up is having our utilities contaminate our probabilities, where we will overestimate the probability of some good thing happening because we want it to happen so much. And it'd be so great if it happened. That's a mistake. We want to get the best estimates of utility and probability that we possibly can for making those calculations. And then once you've committed, it's fine to get excited about the prospect that you've just uh, committed to pursuing um, and to um, embrace it with both arms and to um, charge forward eagerly into investing in the opportunity. But you, before, as the general picking which way to march, like you want to believe the insight from your scouts. Julie Galef has a wonderful book on the scout mindset. You don't want scouts who are delusionally overconfident about no. uh, the prospects of success in one direction or the other. Like you want the best information you can possibly get before you commit to some strategy. Thanks for making the great decision to listen into this week's episode highlight. If you want more of what you just heard, see the show notes for the full episode. As always, for the latest decision-making tips, find us on decidedlypodcast.com or on Instagram at decidedlypodcast. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter from the link in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review as well. We read all of your comments, so if you learned some decision-making tips today, let us know. Until next time, this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.